would like to buy your own copy of Indigenous Women's Voices, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code, US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Emily is a Chiriway woman of Tebracona country, northeast Tasmania, Australia. Her research fields over the last 25 years have focused on Indigenous affairs, land and sea management, natural and cultural resources, regional development and policy and governance of Australian regulatory environments. Jen Evans is a Darug woman with dual connections to Darug and Palawa country. She is a research fellow with the Rural Clinical School at the University of Tasmania, whose research is focused on the valuing of natural environments, land use conflict, participatory GIS mapping and Indigenous methodologies. Together, they are the anthology editors of Indigenous Women's Voices, 20 years on from Linda Tuhiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. In part two of our episode, we asked the editors hard-hitting questions, which include whether men can weave baskets and what feminism and queerness looks like in an indigenous framework. We then delve into the types of resistant work that the editors are currently focusing on, international indigenous rights movements that are currently going on right now, and what forms atonement can take. Take a listen. One of the essays in the book talks about queer indigeneity. I'm going to start off with, can men weave baskets? So how do you queer indigeneity, or rather, how do you indigenize queerness? Thanks, Ming. That's, I wrote that chapter, and as a queer, as black as I, you know, we use the term here, which is exciting to see us adopt and take for our own terms that is happening elsewhere in the beautiful Americas. We're defining our own identity as being black and queer. And in that, can men weave baskets? Yes, they can weave baskets. But if men want to weave baskets, what they need to do is they need to understand the intent of their weaving baskets. We always predicate cultural practices on support for, being taught by, feedback from, respect for our elders. So if a man can find an elder to help him build his weaving practice, that's a wonderful thing too. But coupled to this always, always, always is respect for country and respect for our ancestors. Our ancestors are here. They're with us. Always. So in the action of weaving and making, if a man wants to weave and make, if their intent is to also honour ancestors in that action, then that's perfectly okay. And see, the the other thing too with this is that, you know, this construct of this duality of male-female, the gendered concepts that certain things belong to certain genders, of course there are aspects of culture that it's important for gendered cultural practices. But in our culture, we don't see gender in, in such a set, concrete way in this duality. Some of our languages, Australian Aboriginal languages, have eight different meanings for gender. And they're not only for people, they're for plants, they're for plants that are edible, they're for places that you can go to, they're for parts of country. So it doesn't really apply this singularity of one nor the other. So this is the exciting thing about writing about this concept. Queer theory itself, you know, is coming from, I suppose, a space that is trying to grapple with busting this binary of male and female. So the great thing that an Indigenous methodology can bring is that, well, okay, not such a problem over here for us. Maybe this is something we can share. Maybe we can help. Maybe we can bring out Indigenous methodologies and Indigenous ways of being and knowing to actually help what's going on here for our queer brothers and sisters. Kind of connected to that thought, you've already spoken about how important your book has been already to Indigenous women trying to create and find safe spaces in the academy. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more on the heels of queer theory, how you approach feminism within an Indigenous framework. 
feminism is very much a, again, it's a Western concept. And we talk about women's business because while I don't like universalisms, each individual Indigenous nation isn't of itself, is not comparable to each other. But there are some qualities that we do share in common and having separate men's business and separate women's business is part of that. This is not feminism because for me to undertake women's business means that I respect men's business and vice versa. There is a sense that our lives are intertwined from our separate domains of knowledge and that's a quality I'm not talking about equity, we're talking about equality here. And so I don't have to know the same things as men and, oh, my Lord, as an Aboriginal woman, I don't want to. But the equality comes from contributions we make as Indigenous women to country, to our families, to future generations. It's really quite powerful in and of itself. For me, feminism is very much about, and what? we found, you know, in terms of Indigenous methodologies is having to take a stance against something, Indigenous methodology, against colonisation of an academy, feminism, very much about against male patriarchy. Women's business is different because it's not against anything, it's for itself. And so there's an actual freedom there. But to be quite honest, a lot of the Western arguments about feminism just completely doesn't touch the sides of my women's business life because we are subject to the male patriarchy, but it does not impinge upon the way how I conduct women's business. I mean, we have this beautiful thing of matriarchy. Emma's probably the more appropriate person to talk about this. This is her people and her culture right here on this island. The way that we regard and respect the elders, but, you know, as women... And, you know, as also our men as well, the honour that we give to our aunties, our auntie elders, they are the knowledge holders, they're the knowledge keepers. So from the outside, does that sort of look and feel like a kind of feminism? I don't know. I can't apply the term. But, you know, for us, what is important is honouring and respecting. The matriarchy is a great anchor and a wonderful power for us. There's no question about their power. Never has been, never will be. Supremely powerful. That's the thing about the actual genocide massacre side of colonisation is that as women we stand together, we never got separated out of that. They tried so very, very hard. The flip side of, you know, the male patriarchy is that, you know, the anthropologists only ever recorded men's business. So women were even more marginalised, but out of that margin is where we got our strengths because we weren't under this gaze all the time. And so we've been quite lucky. <laughs> I've been called surviving genocide lucky. <laughs> we've been quite lucky that as women's voices, we've had that thread of connection for us, you know, that's Tasmania 40,000 years and Northern Australia 65, 75,000 years. You know, this action spills into what we call in the book our scholarly women's business. This is like a solidarity across the globe with our sister girls on our writing. And that's why we first couple of times cover Barney professors. We refer to them as Arnie professors and they laughed. But they understand what we mean by that. 
Yeah, this is an ultimate respect, mark of respect and regard that we give. This is what we call Auntie Professor Linda, we refer to her that way. Because, you know, essentially this is where we get to demonstrate to her the ultimate position of uh, matriarchy and, you know, she's a superstar. She, some say, and I would agree, she's the mother of Indigenous methodologies. She is. So feminism, I don't know. I just think it's just the way that we do our business. It's the way we do our women's business. It's fair enough. I mean, who even knows what it means anymore? It means so many different things. It's been so watered down. Excuse me whilst I think about the fights that are going on in feminism at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing about the decolonising. You have to be against something to have your marginalised voice heard. And so feminism is about being against this. And so once again, the actual condition of being female, woman, is watered down because it's surrounded by all this male gaze and whatever. And we're saying, bugger that. That is not who we are as Indigenous women. We don't have this male gaze from our Indigenous men. It's not there. And that is a hugely different quality. And that is why we are unashamedly proud that this book is only about women. We're not cutting out men. We're actually respecting them and their spaces by saying, we're not going to speak on behalf of men. We're not going to speak on behalf of us because that's our cultural underpins as Indigenous people. This is something proud of who we are as cultural peoples together. And then also, this is about decolonising the publishing system by creating a bit of equity and saying country is a co-editor, it's a co-author, but women and returning and restoring Indigenous women's governance to act as a collective of women, really important. I'm going to pivot again so that we don't get into all of the fighting that's in going in feminism at the moment. I love the idea. I think it is actually something notable that, especially over the last few years, that it comes to sort of like the idea of Western feminism. It feels like it's more against something than it is not entirely just about celebrating being women, but it does feel like the entire movement a lot of the time is about being against men all the time, against patriarchy. And that is worthy to some extent, but it feels sad sometimes that it is just about being against something rather than for. Let's pivot again. There's a lot of incredible work in the essays. You do, in fact, I think, talk in the introduction that there are two essays that didn't get written specifically for this book. Can you talk a little bit about what got left out of this book? It doesn't have to be those two essays specifically, but were there any people that you invited to write for this book that couldn't make it? Were there any ideas that you really wanted to see in it? We just left out everything in this book. I mean, honestly, this book could be a never-ending story. (laughs) When I think about food, when I think about law, when I think about sovereignty, you know, I mean, honestly, we missed out so many meaty, beautiful issues about being women. And it surprised and shocked me that an author from Australia found themselves in a terrible situation where they wanted to write about themselves and their work that they had done in conjunction with a white fellow scientist that they work with and take that work and speak as an Indigenous woman, which is right too because, you know, it was her mob, her country. And it turned out that 
she pretty much got threatened with a sack over this, that this white fella said, no, that knowledge belongs to me. You don't have the right, even though it was of her and her people and her country. This is extraordinary turn of events. And so one of our dear sisters, well, I still feel the guilt out of this, that relationship, working relationship got destroyed, that a woman's voice was denied the right of ownership. She couldn't even own her own voice. Just awful. Another one was going through exactly what Auntie Linda was going through in terms of structural racism at work. The trauma and the energy involved in having to defend themselves against claims of being the bad black, the angry black, the, oh, you don't fit within, look at all these other happy blacks, you know, perspective around a university just left her with nothing in the tank to be able to give to her voice. And these are daily issues that we come across all the time, even in safe spaces or what we think safe spaces on, you know, Australia, America, Canada. These are happening every day. And so what we really missed out on was the dissection of how unsafe it is to be an Indigenous woman. When you think about it, I was just having a look earlier, the non-government organisation Global Witness. So 227 Indigenous defenders were murdered last year. And since the Paris Agreement in 2016, four Indigenous peoples a week are murdered, you know, as considered called resistance. And I take great anger at that term. There's not resistance. Resistance suggests that other people own our lands. This is about defending and living our rights to be Indigenous peoples. It's actually one of the most dangerous states to be in, be an Indigenous person. I mean, Colombia alone, 65 Indigenous peoples murdered in one year alone. This is real and it's meaty and in some ways it makes me feel a little bit ashamed because I'm having a moment about trying to reclaim my first-person voice within the academy so I don't have to refer to myself in the third person when our mobs across the world are being murdered every day. And so we are cognizant of that. But danger is danger whether it's about murder or whether it's about exclusion. And there is a hierarchy of scale there. But the trauma and the hurt and the pain is nonetheless real no matter what situation you find yourself in. Mm. In writing the book too, What I really loved was the way we went about it. I mentioned before how it was completely different to any other writing process I've been involved in. We simply, we asked our sisters girls to respond to Linda's work. That's all we said. And we gave them all the time they needed, all the time they needed. We gave them all the support they needed in their writing. Obviously, some had already written before. Some hadn't, they were undergraduate or just postgraduate. So we worked with them to help them find a safe space in their writing about what was important to them. Because as we mentioned before, that action of having to say who you are, where you're from, how you came to be, what matters to you, is a heavy task. It's a difficult task. And they felt the danger in having to write this way. They felt the danger in 
understanding of exposing aspects of themselves and how they feel about things that are very important to them, how they feel about their country, about their homelands. Paulina's essay. Oh, Oh. the last essay. I still let's go there. Yeah, let's go there. Please, let's let's go go there. there. Please talk about it. You know, I keep going back to it. I was sitting down with my niece in front of the fire last night. I said, check this out. This is the most amazing, amazing essay. And the title, What Form Can Atonement Take? And the way that Paulina just expresses herself in a non-conforming sense, but from a Western academic frame, yes, non-conforming, but for us, it makes so much sense. Paulina talks about the actual impact of the bullets into her grandparents others killing Indigenous peoples. And she links that up with what's happening around things like climate change because for her mob, they are the reindeer, Sampi people. And so there's no difference between the death of those reindeer as cultural, spiritual animal and death of grandparents through white fella bullets And the way how we are expected, and she reflects this, that this isn't just a moment in the past. This is who she is today. Being told to, you know, pull your socks up and get over it just doesn't quite cut it, right? She is trying to find a way to express a language of the absolute trauma of removal and genocide and destruction And there's no signpost in this essay. It's really uncertain. You're not quite sure where it's going to go because guess what? That's the life. And so it was really important that Paulina's essay was the last one. We wanted people to be as uncertain as what we are and trying to put a language around the experience of being colonised. And we were so humbled, privileged, that she gave us her words and wisdom. Mm. And she finishes the essay with two beautiful photographs Mm. and they're the only images in the whole book, obviously, apart from the front cover. That reflection of her with the groanings in the water Mm. and the sky above, Mm. it's absolutely beautiful. Because there's hope. No matter how awful the things are, as Indigenous people, as an Aboriginal woman, I feel hope and optimism in my very bone because country is about love. And if we lose that hope, we've lost the love of country and that's just not on. <laughs> right. I mean, without hope, what do we even have? I was talking about this and I have talked about this in other conversations of hope just being such a radical disposition. It is a philosophy. It's really the only thing it has to be an active emotion against the violence of what you've been talking about, the personal and existential things that are at stake in our world, whether it's climate change or genocide or erasure in history. There's just so many different, often just catastrophic forms that it can take. And, and so I think for so many people, it's just really easy to feel burnout and to put your head in the sand and just throw your hands up and say, let it take over. But I think that's when colonialism wins. That's when power wins, when you don't have that kind of collective cooperation. I mean, I think that what you've been talking about, the different forms of violence that Indigenous people experience, I think it does, and how unsafe it is to even exist, to even to express your identity in a public way, in a way that feels authentic, right? That doesn't fit into this performative box that 
Western academies have propped up for you. But I think it reveals how imperative it is to have these ideas of sisterhood, these ideas of cooperation, of organizing, because without it, we're all goners, really. So I was wondering, you've been talking about it a lot with the other authors and activists that you've got involved with the text, but I wonder if you could use this space to talk about some of the people that you would like to highlight who are doing resistance work that you find inspiring. That's the thing about colonization is that everyone has to be this individual who makes of themselves. And we're Indigenous women. We're collective. There's a humility and a humbleness about our culture. I mean, often we'll hear mobs say, if you know my name, I'm not doing my job right. Because it's not about, you know, I mean, we could sit here and name up a whole heap of people, but that's not the point. The point is that Indigenous women represent about, what, 2% of the global population and yet Indigenous peoples, you know, is a total of about 5%, you know, 2 2 2.5%, 5% of the global population. We own manage something like 25% of the world's biodiversity right here, right now. Of course, that number was much larger. (laughs) But here's the thing. What we think of as nameless and faceless Indigenous women, but they're not. These are aunties, sisters and grandmothers. They carry these titles and roles inherent upon how they care for country. It would be almost hubris to sit here and name up others because it almost feel like trying to put ourselves as worthy of them. Mm. There is a gratitude for each and every one of us who do this work. I mean, I would like to think that it begins at home, our mothers and grandmothers. And these women that we have in our book, where each of them have their cultural affiliation with them, because that was important that it's not just about us, it's about country. This is the groundedness of being Indigenous. And so it would be quite easy to name up this person and that person and the people that we cite in our own work. But in reality, there's only one, and that's Auntie Linda, <laughs> because she gave us life, space, and the words to be able to identify ourselves and stand up strong and proud without having to second-guess ourselves. And she so fearless in defending and supporting people like us, the nameless, that we can now turn around and be named We can name ourselves and out of that I have gratitude and thanks and a humbleness that any Indigenous female academic will turn around and say, my grandmother, my mother, my auntie, and they will label the roles of these women who have made us Because for me, it's my mother and grandmother, two generations put in terms of hard effort to get me to where I am. That, there's so few Indigenous women in an academic space, you know. But for us as Indigenous women in our everyday life, here we are with our families. Those women, aunties, grandmothers, sisters, nieces, 
need to be named up. I love them and I owe them everything. The generosity, making me who I am. You know, and our male folk too, you know, I think of my late, beautiful late father and the power he gave me. And I think of my gorgeous son and the power he gives me to encourage me to be the beautiful black woman I am and to the aunties and to the sisters and to the kin. You know, there's Aboriginal people right across this country that get up every day. Their act of getting up and saying who they are and getting on with their business, to me that's everything. All of them are precious and connected to all of them. And our voices, collectively or individually, are all important. I mean, when we think about Karen's essay that opens it up, I'm talking about Aotearoa and New Zealand, but she talks about the river as having person rights, personhood. So this isn't just about people. This is the rivers, the mountains, the lakes, the beautiful seas, the moon, stars at night, because that's the graciousness of being an Indigenous person. It's not about us. It's about country. And so there's more than just people in the academy. It is everything. Thank you for that. It isn't about us. I think to some people that might sound infuriating, but actually there's something so liberating in that, that it isn't just about us, that trees and land have personhood, that they have consciousness. It's really so important to remember that. So just thank you. So many of our cultures, the trees are the embodiment of our grandparents. Mountain is a grandfather. It is. It's liberating and it takes the pressure off you as an individual person to do things. And it puts us back into an anonymous capacity where we act together to care for country. Country loves each and every one of us, but country doesn't recycle through. And so this thing of colonisation, each individual has the right to matter and have their voice screamed out and shouted and heard. It's quite in opposition to what so many Indigenous cultures are because it's not about me, it's about country. And so there is a hubris in speaking out. If we were just quiet, if we just shut up for one moment, let country have that space of a say, let country welcome us and then recognising that agency, we might actually be a little bit healthier. And imagine that, not having to fill the gap. Imagine having that pressure taken off us, people living under capitalist societies, where we don't have to say we can just sit there and listen. Oh, it's such a gift. How freeing that would be to just be able to let go of all of the constraints of the society that just constantly tells you to produce or else your existence is a moral failure. See, so being quiet and respectful in country is the goal. Mm. You're just being beautiful. There's nothing demanded of you beyond an allegiance to your mob and a country to make things better. But it doesn't come from you saying and doing all the time. Oh, capitalism in this Western life is the most exhausting thing in the world. <laughs> That's like what Ming and I text each other every week. Okay. <laughs> every week. This has been an experience <laughs> in uh, an opportunity. 
I know that this for me has been a humble privilege to be able to sit here and have a message of welcome to others through this darling podcast. Um, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Me too. What a wonderful opportunity. What a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. You've both been absolute stars. Just that process of us being able to just talk from our hearts. The great freedom this brings for us to be able to talk openly and fully, meaningfully about what's important to us. Thank you. It's such a gift. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. 